HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. We're a show about food, politics, and identity, and I'm your host tonight, Leah Kurtz. Today, we have with us Evie Chen of Evie Teas. Evie was born into a revolutionist family in Southeast China, often called the Sonoma of Tea. Raised in a culture with very traditional values, her parents encouraged her to explore creativity and eventually sent her abroad to Europe to study at age 15. In 2010, she moved to Boston to attend Emerson College and discovered that America's obsession with sugar had turned the tea she knew and loved into something found in the junk food aisle. Bitter, sugary, and flavorless, it tasted nothing like tea. With the idea in mind, she entered her school's startup competition that same year and launched Evie Tea later in 2014, which became the first cold brew tea brand in America, a totally new category in the RTD industry. Currently, Evie operates a brick-and-mortar tea bar where she experiments with flavors and ideas, and her tea is sold in bottles and kegs in over 500 retail locations throughout the East Coast. Welcome, Evie. Hi. So Evie is calling us from, you're calling from Boston? I am, actually. Okay, thank you. How's the, is it as cloudy and, well, actually, it's kind of sunny today. I guess it's perking up. Is it, are you experiencing the same weather we are, I guess, is my question. Well, my, my expectations for weather as a Bostonian is quite different. <laughs> and you that is true. That is true. We're, we're babies. Like, great. <laughs> yeah, we're big babies over here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Evie, um, I would love to hear a little bit about um, where you grew up, kind of the the vibe of your family, what you remember eating as a kid, maybe what shaped um, your palate today. Yeah, so um, so my family, um, when I talk about my family, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because my mother is actually from the northern part of the country versus my dad uh, side of things are definitely more southern, uh, closer to the sea. So I grew up in this environment where I was exposed to very different kinds of cuisines growing up. So I will have dumplings that my mom's mom makes for dinner and I have, you know, rice noodles and fish and whatnot for breakfast the next morning is made my, by my other grandma. So very earlier on, um, 
I, I guess, different elements of Chinese cuisine were a very big influence in terms of how I looked at food. So I never looked at them as, okay, potatoes are supposed to taste this way. They always taste it different, right, um, on mm. multiple dishes. So that influenced quite a bit of what I know today in terms of ideas of what food could be. It's a bunch of mash mixes of different elements. Yeah, which is great because a lot of us kind of, especially when we're young, unless we have really, you know, like kind of explorative parents are really kind of restricted to like a regional cuisine that we're eating. Correct. So that was a uh, that was an interesting thing. I didn't quite notice this when I was growing up because, you know, when you're a kid, you're kind of you just eat what you're, what's on your table. Right. Um, but as I sort of grew up and, and, and going to adulthood, I was like, OK, that definitely broadened my definition of what combinations and, and food and flavors and textures could be. Right. Because southern cuisines in China, there's a lot of rice, rice noodles, fish, seafood that just steamed with a little bit of salt or soy sauce. Mm. And then to the north, you have lots of meats and lots of noodles and lots of, you know, heavier um, flavored dishes. So, yeah, that must have been, yeah, kind of a, a very broad kind of like difference disparity between those two cooking styles. Correct. And did you at what point did you start cooking? Was that um, when you were still living there? Wow. Well, I actually started cooking after I moved out um, to Europe. Because at the time, there just wasn't a lot of Chinese cuisines around in the town that I was in. So to get any taste of home, I had to cook it. Mm. Yeah. And when you when you use the word revolutionist, um, can you define that a little bit? Yeah. So we had this thing called culture revolution in China, right? So um, and before then, we had a war where um, Japan was taking over the country and Germany was taking over the country. So there was a war going on. Uh, my grandfather was actually one of those people who went on and uh, freed my province from Japan mm. back in the 1950s. Um, so I was born into this more of a political um, politician type of family environment where his thought process has always been very independent from, you know, what's typically on the media or what's typically taught in school. Mm. So you grew up with that as kind of like the underpinning of your family. Yeah. So the framing of things were different. Um, the books I was reading were different. I started reading, I guess, world literature starting at age four which nobody does that, right? So they were feeding me, especially my grandfather, they were feeding me a lot of things that he could hand, he could, he could get his hands on, like books and radio shows and TV shows and whatever, since I was very young, to try to reframe my brain, if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> and did the food reflect that? Did you eat non-Chinese food growing up or was it mostly? Yes. Okay. Um, it, it's interesting because now thinking back, my diet was definitely very unusual. My mother gave me things like milk, um, bread, ham, cheese, macaroni. So <laughs> um, very Western food. Yeah, cereal when I was growing up. Um, I don't think she saw anything off it, but um, they definitely made my palate very acceptable of anything that's foreign to me because it was just a mismatch of a bunch of different things. Wow. And so when you traveled as a teenager, did you, you went alone? 
I did. So I got sent out and I was living in a boarding school. Uh, Where in, in Europe were you? In Switzerland, okay. near Geneva. And what um, were you eating when you were there? Oh, it was because it was international school. Um, we had a lot of kids from like 120 countries or something like that. So the food there was also very, very, very diverse. You have salad for one day. And you have kebabs for the second day. And you have, you know, uh, plain boiled potatoes with a little bit of paprika on top the third day. So it was also a collection of different foods from all different corners of the world. But were they cooking Southeast Chinese food or Northern Chinese food? No, not at all. It was mm. definitely a lot more European. There was a lot of potatoes. Oh, <laughs> Lots yeah. Lots of different kinds <laughs> of potatoes. <laughs> boiled, fried, uh, steamed, you name it. Lots of potatoes. Um <laughs> And the, the flavors were rather plain, let's say. There weren't a lot of seasoning on it. So it was it was healthy, but <laughs> pretty plain. <laughs> oh, did you sneak in any uh, spices to kind of church it up a little bit? Uh, funnily, I actually enjoyed it as the way it was. Um, I guess because I was, you know, born and raised by the seaside, how we eat our food there is just, you know, boil the fish and dip it in soy sauce or you know, boil the crap and eat it without anything. So I was actually pretty used to food be taste what it tastes like without a lot of seasoning. So I was always okay with it. <laughs> that's the, I mean, that's, I guess that's good if you could feel a sense of like comfort and home in a place that was not home. That's kind of the, that's really, you know, meaningful, especially at such a formative age. Yeah, and I think what what it really was was interesting to observe also was that a lot of my classmates were definitely pouring a bunch of different things on top of <laughs> the food to to mask the taste of it. As kids um, are wont to do. Yeah, exactly. And I was just kind of like, they're fine. <laughs> they're fine as they are. And, and I never really felt like they were awful. Um, so when I came to the U.S., it was actually a, a very different end of the culture shock because everything's so heavily seasoned. Mm, right yeah we we love the salts the fat the sugar yeah <laughs> salt fat and sugar <laughs> yep really into it it's a big deal here yeah and was that so that was far more shocking um kind of like culturally but also food wise or food culturally for you compared to yeah, being in switzerland for sure the portion was gigantic um, I've never seen supermarkets that big in my life. Um, I was walking around the street and seeing people drinking a bucket of iced coffee. Mm. Um, so those are, those were all very, very shocking to me. And I was like, what is going on? Wow. And at this point, was this when you were really starting to kind of feed yourself in a, in an environment where you weren't finding kind of what you what you were used to and what you were craving? Um, so when I got to Boston, I saw like a kid in a playground because all of a sudden I had all those ingredients to play with. There are, you know, obviously Chinese supermarkets, and but they're also Indian. They're, you know, there are a bunch of different cuisines that I could reach to. I can have Mexican for dinner if I want. If I, I could have anything I wanted it. So that really, I, I was so excited by all the different cultural influences here and ingredients I could find, eating foods that other people cook and sort of seeing their background and their culture through that presentation. 
and really started to reflect, who am I? Um, am I a China Chinese person? Well, who am I? So mm-hmm. that was that was fun. Yeah. And so what role did tea begin to play? Well, so, you know, everybody has this childhood memory of it's whether a pot of chicken soup that your mom or grandma is making. Um, there's always one element that's consistent in your childhood memory. And for me, that's tea. Um, tea was everywhere. Um, you will see a taxi driver drinking it when you're in a cab, right? You will drink it before a meeting. You would drink it before going to a spa. Um, it was just everywhere. It was a consistent element where I could easily recreate that memory off wherever I was, whether I was in Europe or when I was here. Um, so that really built a solid foundation for me and say, okay, this represents comfort to me. But where does it fit in in my current identity with um, seeing, you know, Americans drinking iced teas like day in and day out um, and, and started to realize, okay, what I thought iced tea was was completely different than what it is here. And what I thought tea was for me means very different things for people here, too. So that was when I got really curious and started to dig a little bit further to explore what American tea culture actually meant. And what was the first tea you tried in the U.S.? Do you remember? I do. It was, oh my God, it was. You're still in therapy was, about it. Yeah, I. it was a shocking moment. Uh, <laughs> it was in a can um, and I grabbed it from a supermarket and mm. it said blueberry white tea on it. Mm. Um, and I drank it and I, I, I was like, I don't taste tea at all. I taste, you know, sugar. Um, I taste some blueberry flavor. It, it, it tastes like sugar water. Mm. And what did you want to be drinking? I wanted to taste the tea. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, just um, I, the, the tea was probably the very last ingredient, you know, in the entire ingredient list. And the tea flavor just was nothing to be found. Um, there's nowhere to be found. It was just, it was blueberry flavored sugar water that was being sold under the label of tea. Yeah. And that probably was, yeah, incredibly irritating, but alarming. I'm sure of like what, you know, where do you turn to at that point then to uh, find what, you know, what you're looking for, those flavors that you were kind of like hoping to find not in that can. Yeah. Honestly, I was so turned off by that experience. I didn't drink any tea for a long time after that, um, other than, you know, what I make at home. Um, I just couldn't find anything on the marketplace that wasn't blind, that wasn't bitter, that wasn't boring, um, that was good to drink and that I could feel good drinking. Um, so I just gave up on it. Hmm. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and hear about um, the solution you created to this problem. (laughs) Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. 
Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high quality, great tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. And we're back with Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. We're a show about food, politics, and identity. And I'm your host, Leah Kurtz. And today in the studio, we have Evie Chen. Actually, she's calling in from Boston. And she's the founder of Evie Teas. Welcome back, Evie. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so we're just discussing the first um, kind of tragic moment in the U.S. when you tried bottled iced tea for the first time, which you defined mm. as blueberry flavored <laughs> sugar water. <laughs> uh, I know. And yeah, I, I, I agree. It's although, you know, I guess I actually grew up drinking really sweet tea. I'm from the Midwest and mm-hmm. it's that's yeah, that's how you drink it. And, and, except if it's hot, then you would tone it down a little bit. But you were <laughs> particularly so you were making hot tea at home but you were wanting kind of something that you could grab and go and that, you know, w- there wasn't like a, a kind of good, high quality, low sugar option at the time. Yeah, I mean, me, me being a millennial, um, convenience was important to me because I, I didn't have time. And like a lot of people that don't have time. So my options were pretty limited. And finally, um, let's say 10 years ago, um, if you say iced tea, in China, people automatically think about Lipton because that's what, we, what, what was thought as iced tea. Mm. You know, it's the lemon iced tea. I, I used to drink a gallon of it when I was a kid. Um, so, so the whole, you know, what a tea could be in a bottle was a pretty new concept, um, funny enough, here in the U.S. as well as in China. So when you would drink it when you were younger, it was just, what What did it taste like or what were the flavors? It was Lipton, but it was just less sweet? It was, um, well, I drank it as almost a juice supplement, right? Like when I was oh. a kid, it was something that um, I drank with my pocket money, like Gatorade. It, it was in the same category with that. And I did not associate that product with traditionally what we considered as tea, which is, you know, made from tea leaves mm-hmm. at all. It was just two completely different animals. Mm. Yeah. And so when you were here and you kind of had been thinking this over and then you saw that there was a a startup competition at your college, what like what pushed you to decide to enter that as, you know, starting a tea business? Um <laughs> Funnily, um, so that class was actually one of the only options um, that lasted four hours each session. Mm -hmm. So I would go to school, you know, for one day of the week versus four times of the week. Mm. So that was (laughs) the the original attraction (laughs) for that that class. Um, But what was really interesting was um, I think until until that point of my life um, as a younger woman, um, it wasn't necessarily, you know, what I wanted to do post-graduation. I was, oh, I was also having a personal identity crisis, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know well enough of who I was. Therefore, I couldn't quite imagine myself um, in one particular career path versus the others. Um, 
compared to a lot of classmates of mine who were sort of having their mindsets on, oh, I'm going to do film, I'm going to move to L.A. post-graduation, or I'm going to do PR and working for this particular marketing agency. So I entered the competition really with, as a way to, to explore um, what I could possibly do. Um, and the tea idea landed on me when I really saw how popular Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks were and thought of, oh, what would happen if I create a tea version of that? And that was before Tivana merged with mm-hmm. Starbucks. Um, so that was really the, the original tea bar idea um, as a chain. But then I quickly realized how capital intensive the idea was. So that, it's funny, it came full circle because years and years later, um, I did create a tea bar <laughs> that idea. <laughs> yeah, and so back to that class, what what were what were some of the blends that you were experimenting with? So, I actually got exposed to tea blends for the very first time in, in my life. If you say green tea, I me then think about oh tea. Are you talking about dragon well? Are you talking about what kind of uh, silver needles? Like what are you talking about? It's one particular variety of tea, mm-hmm. like different grapes, right? Um, the, the fact that you can blend green tea with mango, you could blend green tea with ginger, you could blend green tea with whatever fruit and spices you want was a complete shocker to me. Um, mm-hmm. And then I felt that culinary side of me where I was like, oh, I'm really into blending different op- different elements and culture and then history and ingredients and taste and texture together. And tea, I know, a tea I know well. So that served as sort of a platform and I started experimenting with, like I said, fruits and spices and just different elements that typically wouldn't have appeared um, in tea at that time. Yeah, you found a a new playground. Yeah, it was so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) And so fast forward to today where you, um, you know, you have a thriving tea company. I mean, was it difficult to get started, though, as the first... Um, cold brew and can you explain a little bit why you why you cold brew and what that process does yeah so cold brew is a process of brewing tea or coffee in cold water versus hot water and the extraction time is much longer typically we're talking about 10 12 14 16 to 24 hours depends on uh, what ingredients we're working with so for cold brewing that was a new thing to me. I've never had cold brew things before. And at the time, I had a friend who was a barista who um, made me cold brew coffee for the very first time. And I was just completely blown away by how clean that end product was, of how not bitter and smooth. And you could taste all the layers and textures of that coffee in the cold brew process. Um so really completely, completely got fascinated by it and thought, okay, I know nothing about coffee, but I know tea well. Mm-hmm. So what happens if I put <laughs> tea in cold water? Um, and that was sort of the, the crazy scientist moment <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I started to throw all sorts of things into cold water with different temperatures and brewing time um, just to study them. Um, and I'll come this liquid that was clean and clear. You can see through the liquid. It was how clean it was and tasted the crispness of every layer 
of that flavor. And that was the, that was the aha moment, really. Um, and I thought, okay, I hate sugar. Um, and I couldn't find a way to eliminate the sugar completely for things to taste good. But this cold brew thing, because it's not bitter, you don't need mm. sugar. And that was the, that was the beginning of it. Wow. And yeah, so you sweeten, you kind of lightly sweeten your teas with mostly fruit and honey, correct? Correct. And what are some of the combinations between like the teas and the fruit that you, that are like really popular or that you're most excited by? Um, So I have a black tea strawberry, um, which is a, uh, it's it's very me, um, really. And then, um, so all my ingredients are extremely straightforward. Um, and they're short on, on the label. It is what it is. Um, and I kind of I kind of look at my creations and I guess my own identity as well is that I'm the California roll of tea, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. sushi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so that's kind of the way I approach things is that I layer um, teas I know and love and, and, and I, I'm very good at it with a element that's similar to the American public, such as strawberry. So you're all of a sudden you're not drinking hardcore tea. You're drinking this very fruity, um, juicy pick me up um, with tea in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fruit is very approachable. Yeah, yeah. And so, how was that to start out though? As far as you know, sourcing tea and sourcing the fruit, and um, how important are those components to the end quality? So when I started out, um, cold brew really wasn't a thing at all. Um, you know, co- coffee, yes, it was starting to bud, but cold brew tea did not exist at all. So I didn't really have an infrastructure to go into. And um, and so I, I didn't have suppliers that could lead me one way or another and say, okay, this tea is better for cold brewing, this mm-hmm. tea is not. Um, I kind of had a create everything from scratch. So that was very, very challenging um, because from the get-go, I knew that I wasn't building this um, mom-and-pop business, per se. Um, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted my teas to be approachable um, as well as, you know, affordable um, because if you can't afford it, you can't drink it often, mm-hmm. and you can't. You, you have to go back to your sugary habits of having Coca Cola, right? So sourcing tea sustainably that's organic and good quality and consistent was one of the biggest challenges um, I had when I created recipes. And are all your teas organic? They're all organic, yeah. Wow. And as far as um, where they come from in the world, where um, where do they come from? Um, they come from multiple places. I have teas from Japan, I have teas from China, I have teas from Thailand, South America, um, South Africa. They they do come from all corners of the world. And is that um, is that process kind of different building those relationships depending on you know the location, depending on the tea itself, depending on how reliable the growing season is? Kind of what does that look like? Um, well, that's something that most people don't think about. Um, just like, you know, if we want um, kale, we kind of just expect kale to be in the supermarket all the time um, without thinking, okay, what's the growing season of the kale, right? So mm-hmm. it's a very similar challenge when it comes to tea. Um, different crops and different seasons, how much rain there has been, how much heat there has been. 
um, all those you know natural elements that affect other crops, like grapes that makes wine, affect the tea the same way. So it's been really, really challenging in terms of maintaining a consistent um, product consistency without sacrificing um, the artisan side of it. Um, so working with larger scale importers for teas became um, extremely important that that I'm able to pull thousands and thousands of pounds of tea um, up around you know, around a year and I had to plan for it. Um, mm. If I want 15,000 pounds of something, I had to plan this quite a bit of time ahead. Right. And I guess that, yeah, you need, you need a large quantity, but then the downside is you're not as closely connected with the product. Yeah, there's a very fine balance between the two um, of, now, of how to source an economically um, like a scalable ingredient without sacrificing on the taste and the quality and artisan side of it. Yeah, and do you do you use any spices in your tea? Um, well, not for my current ones. Um, I do have something that works that has spices in it. Um, spice is another one of those things of sourcing organic and sourcing consistency and scale is a challenging one. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, just like many other chai companies will have the same challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, the next layer of like grinding or, you know, buying them whole to preserve their quality and grinding fresh and all of that, like ends up, yeah, there's more, more steps to take. Yeah, for sure. And how does your family feel? Are they, um, were they surprised when you chose to start your own business, especially if you were kind of unsure of what your path would be um so i'm very very fortunate in the sense that my parents are extremely liberal when it comes to this sort of stuff because since i was very young they made sure that i could think and act independently um aside from you know what my teachers tell me because i got myself into a lot of trouble in school honestly um just for the sake of asking too many questions, being too curious, you know, mm. not wanting to follow direction. Um, typically speaking, you know, kids get discouraged from that, that you feel like you're an outsider, that you, you feel like you're a bad kid. Um, my parents went the other way and say, no, it's good that you're asking questions. No, it's good that you're challenging things. So when it comes to, you know, starting my own company, my dad was actually the person who made me do it. Because at a time, um, I found a job to, su- to support myself, like, you know, the recent college grads. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, I figured out that I was a very bad employee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think like many, many other entrepreneurs do. Um, so I got fired from that job. What was so, the job? Do you remember? Yeah, I was actually doing SEO, SEM. So it's a lot of, you know, computer oh, okay. and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, not so the yeah. most creative space, I guess. No, no. I was actually driving myself quite crazy, um, having those ideas in my head and wanting to behave a certain way, right? Talk a certain way um, and learn quickly that it doesn't work in a lot of the corporation world, right? Um, so my dad was actually the person who, who asked me this question and he asked me, okay, so 10 years down the line, when you have more experience, when you have more money, when you have more network, 
Would you want to start your company still? Would you want to do your own thing still? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, that would be cool. Um, and my dad said, okay, so this is the perfect time. Um, start it now. You're going to fall. You're going to cry. You're going to get bullied. You're going to get kicked on the butt. But that's all part of it. And it started now. So that was the moment that I registered www.coroutine.com and started uh, EVT. Wow. And do you think that that push for your creativity and your independence kind of, yeah, kind of made um, taking orders or taking, you know, direction from others a little difficult and that pushed you to, to be an entrepreneur? Oh, absolutely. I think now looking back, my parents knew that I was going to be problematic if I were to stay back home because it was either me changing to adapt into the system or me changing to adapt into the system. There's no other way around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of said, okay, is she going to fit in? No. <laughs> um, so I had, you know, they had no other choices, but to send me somewhere to find out. Um, and that's kind of what I'm doing now. Right. Do you feel like you, you found a place where you fit or do you feel like you just got comfortable not fitting in? It was, that was a hard one. Um, I was definitely not comfortable not fitting in because, you know, there are certain expectations towards what a schoolgirl is supposed to behave, what books you're supposed to read and all that good stuff. And then it felt, it felt very foreign. It felt, very limiting it felt very restricting to a place where um i just i wasn't i wasn't myself and i wasn't happy um and that took many years to outgrow so until now as an entrepreneur i guess because of this particular freedom we have here in the states um we're being encouraged to be who we are and be expressive and it's good that you're not the same right that is a completely 180 in terms of attitude. And that gave me a platform to actually find other misfits just like myself. And then we formed a little community called, you know, entrepreneurship. (laughs) And did you, were you surprised by how conservative this country is when you first came here? And as it's kind of like become a louder, that, that conservative voice becoming a louder one. Yeah, I, I actually landed in the U.S. first in Wisconsin, um, where not a lot of people looked like me, right? Mm-hmm. So as the years go by and as sort of the politics environment changed, um, I, I, I had more, I was more and more confused in terms of where I would fit in. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, unfortunate but at the same time this is the environment we're we're in and and i still get you know i we still a lot of my friends and i we talk about this all the time in terms of like a our 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 identity going to be sort of boxed in as immigrants and minority and ethnics and you know and nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with being the face of tea who happens to be a chinese person but do we have to build our entire identity around it? Yeah. 
That's what, what do you feel like is the answer? Um, so I think that, um, a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing now is sort of catered towards that particular mindset. Um, is that, yeah, I, I am Chinese. There's nothing I can do to change about that, but I'm also a, an American Chinese. And that means that I have my cultural background and I'm proud of it. And I look the way I do. I speak the way I do. I, I do have an accent. Um, and, uh, but I'm just like millions and tens of millions of others. And we all come from different places and we're all in this melting pot called America and be proud of what that American Chinese culture represents. That's not authentic. No, it's not authentic to our mainland China, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be this mashups of different things and cultures and all that stuff. So um, I think there's a way to be realistic about how other people look at us and how we look at ourselves and build an identity around that. And it's funny the way you talk about your identity is, as a mashup is kind of how you started our conversation talking about the food you grew up eating. Yeah, which is, you know, a bit unusual, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of great, though, you know, it's it, and this need to be authentic. It's um, it's important to be distinct and to be, you know, memorable. But yeah, this need for authenticity, hopefully, is something that's fading because it's not real. It is not, you know, there's no I mean, there's no one person in this world represents 100 percent of exactly you know where they come from because even that represents a lot of cultures and histories and um and their stories right we're all made up by generations of stories that come before us so that's a new world um and uh we just gotta play with what the world brings us i think versus fighting to go back to what it was um, we're worried about what it's going to be because that's, that's, you know, all we have is now. Yeah. Embrace the change. Exactly. Roll with it. <laughs> so Evie, where can we find your tea where, and are there any upcoming, um, exciting things you want to share before we get off here? Yeah, so um, we're actually me and my, my team. We're actually in the in the, in the middle of scaling up. Um, so I'm not, I I can't say exactly who yet, but we are launching with three major um, chains that sells you know specialty groceries. Um, so you're gonna be able to find EVT in an additional of 750 stores starting wow. next month. Wow! Um, Congratulations. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely just crazy. Um, so starting from Vermont down to Florida, you're going to find MBT, um in cafes, restaurants, you know, specialty food stores and uh, many, many other places. So follow us on Instagram and find out exactly who those people are. And your handle is not EVT. It's cold brew tea. tea. Okay, <laughs> right. And yep, then we're, and- at, we're at cold brew tea. Okay. And your tea bar, your brick and mortar location, where is that located? It's in Jamaica Plain in the Boston uh, neighborhood. Okay, great. Evie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been great to hear your story and I definitely need to go find your tea. I want to try it. (laughs) 
that sounds good to me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. All right. And thank you for listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. You can find this episode and others on heritageradionetwork.org. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can tune in every Wednesday at 6 p.m. for a new episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.